From the fish-filled Midwest lakes to the deep woods of the north, upland prairies filled with pheasants to whistling wings of duck ponds, this is Thursday Night Fan Outdoors. This is the show for hunting and fishing tips, topics, and conversation. Loaded up and ready to go, it's the Captain Billy Hildebrand. Good evening, Fan Outdoor listeners. Yes! On a Thursday evening, a beautiful Thursday evening, albeit dry, but the sun is shining, the wind is is light out of the southwest, and it is a very, very nice day. You got rain in the Twin Cities yesterday? Well, in central Minnesota, we got not a drop. So it uh, it's sporadic at best, and driving... Th- Around the country a little bit, Uh, we need some rain for the farm folks. The corn crop, it looks like it's getting really, really dry. But in the Twin Cities, I was told that in the North Metro, an inch and a half of rain was experienced yesterday. And that's all good stuff. So let's welcome into the conversation our very good friend who is in studio in St. Louis Park, and I am on the shores of Sock Lake looking out at a a sunny, glistening lake. Bob St. Pierre is looking at three monitors (laughs) and uh, the email from time to time that goes on and by in the big chair. Good evening, my friend. Hi, good evening, Captain. Uh, You're right, we had had a nice dose of rain in the... uh, northeast metro yesterday and uh if if you've kept up with watering your garden it has been um a banner year for gardening it is going to be a bumper crop (laughs) and it's at that time of year where have you ever grown zucchinis captain no (laughs) really no uh it's it's the time of the year where no. uh, like one day like yesterday I go out and you're like oh you get zucchinis like the size of my you know uh size of my thumb you go out later on the next day you know 24 hours later and there's the size of circumference of a baseball bat they just they grow like I'm exaggerating a little bit but they they jump out and surprise you every 2 3 days and uh they are a prolific vegetable, <laughs> so if uh, there might be some on the uh, oh out on a table by the mailbox before too long for for people to pick them up along the uh, the neighborhood. I can guarantee you, Bob, that I would never be picking one up. You don't like zucchinis? Never. No, really? No. no. Just sweet corn well, for you, huh? Uh, I yeah, I, I'll I'll stick to sweet corn. <laughs> well, everything is growing, um, like I said, in the in a controlled situation with this heat and in water. You know, and I'm not, as you mentioned, the farm fields out there that are not irrigated are a little bit uh, different scenario. But good golly, the the garden is uh, is exploded this summer. Well, good for you. 
<laughs> your yard. What kind of shape is that in? I I only have to mow like once a month. This is, I, you know. Well, you don't have to mow it when it's all brown. <laughs> this is this is tall cotton and man. weeds. Positive. Yeah. Well, one thing that your dandelions have all gone to seed. I'm sure. They they are they are we've moved from dandelions helping the pollinators to uh, the compass plants and the cone flowers and the um, all sorts of per- bu- and, and you're doing weed. nothing for your neighbors because I'm sure glad I don't live next to you. <laughs> Come on, it's beautiful right now. It is in, yeah. it is in full bloom. It, it really is amazing. Um, you walk by and we just have a little tiny pollinator prairie in our backyard and it is a buzz i mean you can walk by and you hear the buzzing of the 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 bees and there's butterflies and there's monarchs um you know we've got raspberry bushes and thimbleberries in the backyard too it's it's like a um relative menagerie back there captain well i have a buzz but it's hummingbirds that are going by my head is I, I filled the feeders yesterday, and they're about half gone already. So there's, they're they're eating well, and the flying squirrels are coming in early. They were here right about sundown day before yesterday, and I think there were a couple of young ones. Hmm. Because as soon as I uh, stepped outside, they were gone, not to be seen again, but they were sure running around and playing before that. See, that's the extent of mine. <laughs> yeah, but your live well has been full more often than mine has. <laughs> well, that's true until today. Oh, really? You just well, didn't go out. I, I did go out, but I, uh, I had, I had, I had a couple of fish, and I threw them back. And... <laughs> well, see, <laughs> so you're not really telling a lie there. I mean, you, you did catch fish you could have kept. I, I did until I lost my super secret bait because I think I either a carp bit it or I snagged it, and I think it's more often than I snagged it. And I've been driving across the country, <laughs> around the country, trying to replace it. The, the one crankbait that you had one of. Uh, that's is, right. Is and it came as a gift oh, from man. Berkeley to me. <laughs> and that never happens, meaning you having a singular lure of any kind in your your tackle box could you normally well, obviously it was a, obviously it was a one of a kind because <laughs> nobody's ever had one before uh, and do you know the name of it um, or just what it looks like uh i don't yeah i know what it looks like and i can't find a color even close to it have you tried this new invention called the internet i have not <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an amazing thing that you can find lures that um, you're you, you know just might be uh, discontinued two years ago. They they show up on this interweb, Captain. Well, see the the that that thing. I've got all kinds of old lures that have been discontinued. They didn't catch anything anyway. <laughs> but it sounds like this one did, based on our earlier conversation. Were the were the um, uh, the targeted fish still in three feet of water? Uh, yes, that, uh, but on def- different parts of the lake. You know, it sure feels like you're trying to throw me off the scent because that's not the <laughs> that's not the book on on walleye's midsummer. I I am uh, <laughs> uh, one of our guests just texted me and now I know the name of the bait. <laughs> Did that that said guest find them on the internet so you can order some? 
Uh, no, he didn't. But he just—he's just smarter than I am. So. What's the, what is the name? It's called a flicker shad. Oh, yeah, that's I not hard you, to find. <laughs> well, no, but I just couldn't remember it. Oh, I can find all kinds of them, oh, but the colors. What color are you after? I'm not telling. <laughs> We're gonna break the internet. <laughs> I'm not telling. Seriously. <laughs> You've gone tackle Terry Tuma on me. <laughs> no, I've gone dad because Eric will shoot me. <laughs> I'm not even asking you where. I'm just asking for the color of the lure. No, I'm not telling. Sorry. <laughs> I thought it was marshmallows. Yeah, well, it, it is. That's what it was. Well, okay. Yeah, this That's is, what I thought. This is, Brett, this is uh, what are, 12 and a half years I've been out with the captain. He's never withheld information wow. like this. This is a pretty special. Yeah. It's pretty marshmallow special color. sank really low here. I guess so. And, and it's pink marshmallow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got some of those, I'll sell you. See, yep. And, and sometimes it's a, you tip it with a hot dog. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but whatever it was, it took me forever to figure it out. It took me actually... One full day of fishing with nothing, and another frustrating morning, and then in the afternoon, in the heat of the day, I found it, and it didn't take long to catch a limit. Hmm. And it was it was really fun. It was really fun. I have never thrown a crankbait on four-pound line, though. <laughs> I, I'm looking at the Berkeley website, Captain, and they've got like 32 different colors of flicker shads. Oh, is that on that interweb thing? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. It is. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll have to look at that. <laughs> Six dollars a piece. I can order them up for you during break. I've already got a lot of money invested <laughs> in about a dozen of them. <laughs> you kept buying them, just not the color you that you want. <laughs> yep. Just uh, just in case they they change. <clears throat> But I'll tell you what, if I find one that works, I'm not going to have just one. How's that? <laughs> well, I believe you. Uh, so it, it, to uh, to will you be fishing tomorrow, and will you report back on Saturday whether any of these other colors work? I, y- yes and yes. Okay. Good deal. Yes and yes. Is it a standard um, color? Is it on the rainbow? Uh, he, he, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Don't know what that means. <clears throat> Who are you and what did you do with the captain? <laughs> is this I, Eric? Still, this is still on a trial basis, Bob. Oh, I mean, I can't... I don't want people to be going out and using something that I'm not sure works. <laughs> well, in your defense, you are not the only person uh, sending me photos of live well images filled with walleye from sock lake anymore there i know that there are multiple people having success catching walleyes on sock lake and um um, that's where that's where your your two boys would prefer that you stop talking about walleye fishing on sock well one of the things i'm waiting for are these brassy shiners to grow up i was actually fishing yesterday with danny fletcher And where I thought I thought it was going to be so easy to find sunfish, and if Tommy is listening, I I I did mention it to him. Mm. 
and it wasn't. It was a cloudy day yesterday, and I fished where I had seen them before, and they were over deep water, but they were high in the water column. Big sunfish. We fished deep, we fished shallow, and it took, I think, three different stops in order to, to find some fish. And then we caught all that Denny wanted because I wanted none. And uh, he wanted, I think, six for dinner, and that's all he wanted. And uh, but we did, we caught what we needed, and and then we went out and fished bass and and caught a number of bass. That was fun. Hmm. That was a good time. You uh, you're proving you can catch all kinds of species this season. Uh, yeah, it was it was really fun yesterday though, hmm. and because there's there's and once we found it's just like. It's just like guiding, and we have to go to break, too, but it's just like guiding. Once I find the fish, I really don't care if I catch any. Mm. Um, that's I just want the uh, the people with me to catch them. But you don't want any but of us. Until list. that time, it gets a, it's, I struggle a little bit. But but you'd prefer not any of us listening catch fish on the hot colored lure. That... Well, I'm not going to tell people what it is in case it doesn't work. Oh, really? I mean, I'm, I'm that kind of guy, Bob. <laughs> You're so thoughtful. So I know. Hey, let's take a pause because this evening we're going to come, well, actually following the break, we're going to talk with Todd Amonrood because whitetail season, for a lot of people we learned a few years ago, it, it runs all year long. And we'll talk with Todd about some uh, uh, food plots. Is it too late to put them in? Not too late? What should you put in? And, uh, and such. And then maybe you'll have a feeling about the whitetails that he has seen and the feeling he has for them out there this this e this evening. And also we'll be talking with John Whipley a little bit later in the program of Anomalies Barbecue. And he has a whole new endeavor that just begun too. We'll talk with him about that. And then we're going to talk about some of the pheasant forecast. Bob is all about fall, you know. He's been done with summer for about three weeks now. <laughs> so we will talk with Matt Christensen about that. So let's take a pause and we will be back with more fan outdoors. Right after. And the fan. Eighteen minutes after the hour of seven o'clock and a fan outdoors Thursday evening, not to be confused with Saturday morning. Bright and early at six o'clock we begin. And I invite you to stop on by there too, because the coffee will be on. It might be a can of Coke, and we can double fist it together, okay? Bob St. Pierre in studio. Let's welcome into the next uh, the conversation our next guest. He has been on with us a number of times before and always talking about whitetail and food plots and things that you could do to help ensure your success a little bit better. He would be Mr. Todd Amonroot. Todd, good evening, sir. Good evening, Bob. Billy, how's she going? Not bad, my friend. Not bad at all. How about yourself? I, I like nighttime better than that 6 a.m., <laughs> especially when I want to sleep in. This is great. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, well good. I'm glad. Yeah, but it, it, the morning does come early. It's a nice part of the day, though, Todd. It really it is. is. It is. I enjoy those, too. So you've gone, I'm good with that, too. Um, is it too late for food plots? Oh, no. And in fact, now it would be perfect timing You're, uh, for getting any kind of a brassica in the ground. Rape 
canola, um, radishes, like a daikon radish, not your auntie's red dinner radish, uh, turnips, things like that <laughs> would be perfect timing to, uh, to plant right now. And I would say you're probably actually a little bit early for huh. things like cereal grains, oats, wheat, triticale, things like that. Uh, winter peas would be another, you could put those in just about any time now through, uh, through the beginning of, uh, August. Well, what about garden vegetables? Bob was talking about his garden and all <laughs> that going wild. Deer will often get into that kind of thing too, won't they? Well, uh, absolutely. If there's whatever's the most palatable thing around, they'll, they'll get into that. And, uh, my, uh, believe it or not, because it had a sprinkler system in it, we had a fairly large, uh, um, vegetable garden, uh, that was my ex-wife used to, uh, do. And, and uh, it has, uh, for the last few years been a food plot now. So, <laughs> well, that is, that's, ca- that's kind of what yeah, a garden they'll is. Like, they'll, they'll eat things uh, that are in your garden, too, you bet, absolutely. <laughs> well, what about, uh, you mentioned brassicas, good old cabbages and broccoli and cauliflower, yeah. or are those just going to get annihilated instantly? Well, no, not all brassicas, but they, it, that's a huge plant family. The ones that we typically plant for whitetails, uh, have huge levels of, uh, of, uh, they, they turn into sugars without going through a scientific description. They mm-hmm. have huge levels and that creates carbohydrates. Those sugars, you know what, uh, whitetails love those sugars in the, mm-hmm. in the fall. It means, uh, both heat and fat. So, um, they have huge levels of starches that when we get our cold temperatures here in the north, especially, they'll work anywhere in the country, but we have one up on the guys in the south because our cold temperatures turn those starches into sugars and mm. then it's like candy to whitetails. Mm. Oh. Well, what about things like like apple trees and stuff like that? Because I see most of them protected if people are growing them for consumption. Well, I grow them for whitetails, and I protect mine, too, because if you don't, they'll come by and browse them down to little nubs. So you, you almost have to protect them for their first few years. Um, but, but then, you know, the, the main producing limbs typically grow out of reach, or, or they'll browse, browse those down, too. And during a nasty drought like we're in right now, anything palatable They'll they'll just wipe it out. Well, the 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 cornfields in the farm country, Todd, they they must be quite a, a draw for whitetails, and I, I maybe maybe it's because it produces everything, cover and food at the same time. But they they sure seem to browse the outside rows of cornfields because it's right down to cobs. Yeah, at, at times corn. Corn is is great. Typically, the colder the temperatures, the more they'll they'll be into the corn. But on an average fall, all and in fact, we cash crop corn, soybeans, wheat, and alfalfa here on our home property, and I'll draw them out of the corn nine days out of ten during the fall to get to to certain other things. But yeah, they can. The the nice thing about new corn planting is our rows are so 
so close together now compared to the, you know, 36-inch rows that we used to have back in the day. It were a white tail could easily bet be between those rows. Now they have a harder time, so they kind of got to find a place in that cornfield to bet where, you know, not all the stocks are grown up or they've been knocked down or whatever. But, yeah, you've got both food and cover right there. Corn is actually a not a very good nutritious plant. You're only looking 7 to 9% protein as compared to those brassicas we mentioned, which – uh, you're looking on up to 36% crude protein. So, um, you know, there's there's big differences there. Again, though, that corn, carbohydrates equal heat in the wintertime. So when we get super cold temperatures, though, they will be in the corn for sure. How do you plan for the food plots to be ready when the the legal season begins uh, or isn't that what you do, Todd? Well, it depends upon what you mean by be ready. Certain plants uh, produce a a grain, a bean, a pea, a cob, or, you know, so there's really not much you can do to hurry them along. They're just going to get mature when they're mature. Other things are most palatable during certain stages of their growth. For instance, we mentioned cereal grains before. Cereal grains are most palatable to whitetails for their first about 60 days. Hmm. It depends upon what type it is, oats, wheat, drink kale, things like that, are, are most palatable for their first 60 days. So the key, uh, we have a very short window of, of planting here, but the key is to plant them early enough so you get some decent growth so the cold temperatures don't shut everything down before you've produced anything yet still plant them late enough so that 50 to 60 days of growth extends in, into the fall and into the hunting season as, as, as long as possible. They'll eat the cereals after that 50 to 60 days, but they're really, after that time, the nutritional content, the palatability, everything just drops off the table. So you can freshen them up by mowing them a little bit, and if the whitetails are browsing them down, it's, it's kind of like you may have seen with perennial clovers and alfalfa and whatnot. Uh, uh, the, they'll, they'd much rather be in a field that, uh, you know, Farmer Billy Bob mowed it a week ago and it just rained. That's the field they're going to be in compared to the one that might, you know, be knee-high with tough stalks and and hard, you know, it's harder for them to digest. They love that new succulent, tender growth with less lignin in the plant, which means they can actually utilize more of the the nutrients in the plant. So, if our guest is Mr. Todd Amonrud, Bob, go ahead. If I'm looking to plant a food plot for deer, am I a trying to foster growth of the animal and, and the antlers by planting high protein uh, forage? Am I B, trying to pull deer into an area uh, during hunting season to keep them in, you know, a food source? Or C, am I trying to do both? Well, yeah, there's, there's other things. I, I would say that's the beauty of it is it depends upon the individual. It depends upon the landowner. Uh, here, okay, let's say, boy, I've been glassing all August, and and I've got 
five Pope and Young sized bucks in the soybean field and all of a sudden hunting season comes around and the soybeans are harvested and those deer are gone, well, I would probably put much of my emphasis into attraction during the hunting season or, you know, drawing them in from surrounding areas if that were the case. Let's say uh, last year I harvested a five-year-old. I brought the jawbone in and someone told me it was, or maybe you know how to age deer yourself by toothwear. Someone said it was five years old, but it only scored about, we'll say, 120, 125 inches. Well, that animal should have much larger antlers at that age. So then I might look at, at putting most of my emphasis into health and antler growth. and, and But you can, you can do it all. If you have small acreage, heck, you can have a, a food plot a tenth of an acre if you want. But if the smaller your acreage, you really have to use more of the rifle approach than the shotgun approach. You have to really be specific with your goals and and plant the you know the one thing that's going to get it done for you. If you've got enough acreage, you can do all of the above. Do hunters ever plant multiple food plots on a piece of property that they own? Oh, oh, uh, yes. I would say that that most people who are really into planting food plots have multiple multiple food plots. I would say here on my home property in Ham Lake, I have probably uh, uh, seven right now but that's just because i got back into it i used to until last year i owned 500 acres in ontario and spent most of my time up there where we had probably 40 acres of food plots up there Hmm. um and and numerous plots so so yes and and a lot of times getting back to bob's question what do you plant for a lot of that might be where that food plot is located in reference to where the deer are bedding, you know, how long is it going to take them to get to this spot? If it's going to be after dark before they get to that spot, then I might consider that more of like a destination feeding plot where if you got that little hidey hole plot next to the tree stand, well, then that's for attraction during hunting season. So your goals might change uh, depending upon the size and, and where that plot is located, too. Uh, then Todd, how how do you if the if the f- plot isn't going to c- become ready until let's say hunting season, do the deer just know it's there, or do you rope off the food plot and not make it available, or are they just not as interested in it? Well, it, it could be any one of those answers. What are you planting? For instance, brassicas typically aren't going to be palatable until we get the cold temperatures to turn them the most attractive state. Quite frankly, if they're eating your brassicas before that point, you likely have some type of a nutrition problem in the area. In our farm belt here, it's not too much of a, a of a problem, but you get further up north, and that very well could be the case. On my Ontario property, it wasn't until we had probably 12, 15 acres of brassicas in that I could get them to last into November. They would have them wiped out by the end of September with you know, five to eight acres. So, um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it all depends. It's, that's a kind of an open-ended question. Um, then with, w- it, it, do people ever combine, let's say, a, uh, 
a, a watering source, a watering hole. I know my my aunt owned property up by Northholm years ago when I was much younger and had I think the DNR came in and blasted a a, a watering hole and it went down. It was like twenty feet deep, but it was it, the aim was not to hunt. It was for wildlife. Is that an attraction also, if you can do something like that? Well, I would say every living creature needs it. So, yes, absolutely. Typically, if you have whitetails in your area, there's a water source somewhere nearby. But I am so grateful. My Hall of Fame angler father, before he passed away, Doug several ponds on the property here where we i don't know that i've been fishing anywhere but my backyard for the for the last (laughs) few years but i'm so grateful because i in this drought especially i have a thing called it's a big sprinkler and it is literally that but that's the name of the company too big two inch hoses on it and i can suck water out of those ponds and during this drought uh, that's my food plot insurance. It's uh, it's keeping my my plots alive. It's amazing. Uh, every animal, it, let alone the deer, the sandhill cranes, and the geese, and everything is in my food plots eating soybeans right now because they're the plants that are getting the moisture of the water and growing faster than everything else. So they're getting wiped out about as fast as I can grow them. But uh, that water, absolutely, that is a, a draw in itself. But it's also a blessing in disguise for me in in, uh, in that means. Todd, we have to take a pause. Can you stay with us? Absolutely. Our guest is Mr. Todd Amon Rudin. Before we finish our conversation, uh, we'll give you his number if you need to get in touch with him. And, and he will we'll ask him, too, when we come back, uh, what he can do for individual hunters if they have questions and things as such. So we'll take a pause and be back with more Fan Outdoors. Fan. We're back. Fan Outdoors coming your way until the 9 o'clock hour. Our guest this evening is Mr. Todd Amon Rudin. We're talking whitetails. We're talking food plots. Um, and all that goes into it, and me never having planted a food plot and don't know much about it. I love hunting deer, but I'm uh, I'm just going out and hunting them. I'm not uh, strategizing and, and planning food for them, mainly because I don't have property to do that on. But uh, the, if you have property, you might want to uh, talk more with Todd if we don't get in, if you have questions after our conversation. And... And Todd, is with planting food plots, what's the latest you can go, and uh, before you should, uh, uh, before you should say, well, it's just too late, or what if it if we don't get rain in some parts of the state or wherever you're hunting, will will the plot dry up if you can't water it? Well, that, I mean, you're always up against Mother Nature. Quite frankly, this is the worst year that I can remember for, for drought. Um, it's, it, well, doesn't mean that's what it's going to be like. It looks like for the next week it might be, but you sure. know, through the, through the rest of the year. Uh, and again, like I say, that big sprinkler system is sure helping me out, but the latest, it, it really depends upon the crop. Uh, you got to think here, uh, 
it, it depends upon how much growth you need. Do you need that specific crop? Like we said before, certain things need to go through to maturity to produce a bean, a pea, a cob, whatever it might be. Um, so uh, it really depends upon the crop. You got to think here. It, it's changed over, you know, the last 20 years or so, but our, our first average annual killing frost for the year is typically that September 20th time frame in, in you know, central Minnesota and it's, uh, er, you know, earlier further north and a little later further south. But, um, uh, typically once you get that first killing frost, uh, most of your annuals uh, are, are going to start dying off. Brassicas are, are one that will actually keep, they're very cold hardy and will actually, you get a, a, a 28 degree night, they'll warm back up, perk up and keep on producing if, uh, if the warm temperatures keep on. But uh, uh, so it really depends. I would say in our neck of the woods around that first week of uh August, I don't know that I'd plant, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, last week of August, I don't know that I'd plant much after that, but that would be when I would be planting cereal grains, and they germinate, and deer can be on them, like, you you plant them, and deer can be eaten in your cereal grains 10 days later, so it it really depends upon the crop. Um, I wouldn't plant brassicas that late, but cereal grains I wouldn't be afraid to here. What about clover? I mean, I've got some friends who plant clover along a lot of their their trails and just uh, do it that way. Absolutely. Clovers are, uh, back in the day, heck, when I first started doing food plots back in the 70s and 80s, we would put a, a big bulk of our food plot acreage into perennial clovers, which would include red and white clovers uh, and and numerous different varieties. You got typically a small leaf, the medium leaf, the, a large leaf, uh, white, and then you've got maybe a couple different reds in there. And I might mix some alfalfa in there, bird's foot trefoil. And typically when you're looking at perennials like that, a blend, uh, clover plus would be my favorite clover blend because it, it has all of those, uh, things in there. And then what happens is the cultivar, the, the plants that savor that growing site, your management style of uh, clovers, perennials like that should be mowed several times a year and, and should fertilize them. And, you know, what what plants favor that growing site and your growing, uh, the way you take care of them will emerge to the forefront. So a blend is typically best, but those are uh, amazing nutrition, especially important during the summer months uh, after a harsh winter, everybody thinks, oh, things are green. It's great now for whitetails, but it's not. The, the native vegetation really doesn't start to get going. Even though it's green, it's not producing good quality food for, for whitetails uh, at that time. So having something that's coming out of the ground like a perennial, and there are annual and biannual clovers too, but uh, uh, perennials are what most people would plant and having something green and nutritious you're looking you know good 24 per 20 24 up to 30 percent protein depending upon the (laughs) the the cultivar so it's it's clovers are are amazing i don't put as much acreage into them as i used to i would bet that i put you know almost 50 percent of my food plot acreage into clovers back like i say back in the 80s and 90s 
Now I would say it's probably closer to 10% just because um, the amount of food that you can get out of other plants, the quality, the uh, variety that you can plant is, is important. And with just that amount of clover, it you know, you have to kind of keep an eye on it. If your clover's all eaten down lip high, then you probably got to plant more clover. But a uh, 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 you know, couple acre clover plot can really produce tons and tons and tons of, of quality for it. At, at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we it, there's been a mentality shift over four decades where early on we would talk about planting food plots for birds for hunting purposes to mm-hmm. to, to bring birds in, and now it's it's. The philosophy has changed. I mean, certainly people hunt their food plots, but their food plots are planted. There's a saying within our organization, plant the grocery store or the kitchen next to the bedroom. In other words, plant food next to winter cover um, where food plots have become more of a way to pull populations of birds through the winter in healthy conditions for year on year on year. Is that mentality um, similar in whitetails that there's been a philosophical change, or is it still primarily focused around you know we want to pull deer here for hunting and it's they'll find winter cover where they find it because they move so much more. Well, that that's a big key. That the the size of the range of the uh, of the animal and or bird is is here for pheasants. That is exactly what I would do. I want some thick cover adjacent to to good food, adjacent to thermal cover, mm-hmm. right? I yep. want all those three things pretty pretty darn close. For whitetails, heck, I can you know you can have that a mile away, mm-hmm. and, and it's still and it's still effective. That makes sense. Uh, Todd, we're almost out of time. Are do you have to pay attention to what part of the country you're in based on what kind of seed you get? Well, the types of plants you plant, absolutely. Regionally, you know, the amount of rain that you you get. I used to uh, do some consulting and work out in Colorado and Nebraska for the higher-ups at Cabela's when it used to be just Cabela's back in the day. And those people would, uh, you know, the ranches I, I was looking at, they'd get you know, maybe 18, 20 inches of rain a year. And so the nice part about it is most of that rain would come, you know, right now through uh, October and into November for them. So we would concentrate on planting plants, you know, coming up in the next few weeks to catch that, you know, in quotation marks, I use fall rains. Um, and and it, it worked. But, uh, but yes, you have to be very selective uh, about what you plant in certain areas, not only for that, but because of uh, different soil types throughout the, the country. If you go to the uh, NRCS's website, Natural Resources Conservation uh, uh, Service, they'll, um, they have a map, and it, and it kind of tells you, like, pHs throughout the country. You also have to look at, are you clay, are you sand, um, and, uh, you know, the certain plants do better in certain growing conditions. So you want to, uh, right now, God has made it perfect for whatever plant is growing there now. I want to change that to make it 
perfect for whatever crop I want to grow there. And in some cases, some crops just aren't going to grow anywhere. So, yeah, you do have to be selective and uh, uh, the, the uh, obviously freeze dates, things like that come into place. So. Can you help people if they have questions and would like help, Todd? We have wonderful resources to help people with that. Uh, uh, at Gamekeepers would be where I would go, aside from being able to ask professional biologists and wildlife consultants actual questions. There's a load of good uh, information there. And, and really, you don't have to worry about that. Just go to the Mossy Oak website, and on the main landing page, it lists all the Mossy Oak businesses across the top. You just click on Mossy Oak Gamekeepers, and it'll, it'll bring you right there. You can get in touch with me there. I'm happy to help. Excellent. Hey, Todd, thanks, buddy. And uh, I mean, you're probably going to have to go start your sprinkler. Not for a while, though. You got some rain yesterday. We did. We got, uh, in fact, the day before, we, we got a little, ooh, looking at the radar, a little yellow block opened up over the top of us. We got an inch uh, both both days. So uh, uh, we got two inches. So, yeah, that'll – but it's going to be dry, dry for the next week to ten days. So I'll be out there lugging gas cans out and starting up the – <laughs> well, in central Minnesota, Todd, we got not a drop. I know. I know. I'm so sorry. But it's so funny because my uncle manages a property for Whitetail and Isanti. And, and what happens here is completely different, just, you know, what, 10, 10 miles, 12 miles away from, from where I am. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of wild. Mother Nature. Hey, man. Something. Thanks, Todd. A whole bunch. We'll talk again. Anytime, Billy. Thanks, Bob. That's We'll see up. Todd Amonrood and Mossy Oak is where you need to go to find answers to questions that you may have, and you can contact Todd from that site also. And if uh, so, we will take a well. I was just going to say, if your your friends with all the clover on the trails need help controlling their grouse problem, um, pass along my email. <laughs> Now, have you heard somebody have a grouse problem? It's, <laughs> no, but if they planted that much clover, um, I can help them out. See, it's a little like my crankbait color. <laughs> You're willing to help, and <laughs> so it's green. <laughs> All right, let's take. We'll take a pause, and we'll be back with a professional chef and the owner of Animalies Animalies Barbecue, and. A brand new venue. Mr. John Whipley is the owner. We'll talk with him next on Fan Out. This is the fan. When the sun goes down on my side of town, that lonesome feeling comes to Almost 8 o'clock on a Thursday evening, Fan Outdoors Thursday evening, that is. The evening is delightful, and I hope you're going to have a chance to get outside. And if not, I hope you got plans for the weekend coming up, because I think it's going to be very nice. Hey, Bob, will you introduce our next guest, please? Absolutely, Captain. He is the author of two cookbooks, Venison and Fish. He's the owner of the incredibly successful food truck, Anamale's Barbecue in Northeast Minneapolis, and the brand new 
restaurant food truck Animales Burger Company. John Whiffley, responsible for probably the most memorable morning in my 12 years of, of Saturday morning <laughs> fan outdoors. When you brought in, and I know Captain, based on that mm sound, you remember what I'm talking about. Oh, when John, yeah, I remember that you you didn't have much to say that day. You were so busy eating. <laughs> well, John brought in pork belly, eggs, uh, sandwiches, and they were they were out of this world. And I don't think I talked for an hour and a half of the show. John, John, welcome back to Fan Outdoors. Thanks for joining us on what I assume is an incredibly busy evening at uh, Anamales. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me back on. It's pretty busy over here, and uh, but it's good to take a break and hop on the radio with you. <laughs> Are you at um, the barbecue truck or the burger truck tonight? We're over at the burger, or I'm over at the burger truck tonight, uh, and we're doing a bunch of stuff. We're trying a bunch of new smoked items over here, smoked oysters. Uh, we did some hat, we did some halibut too. Um, a few other things. So, kind of a fun night, you know. No complaints here. <laughs> well, seeing the crush. Yeah. Uh, you always have, and I, I keep seeing this news coverage of Anamales. You know, one of the top five must stops to eat in the Twin Cities. It's just unbelievable how much positive coverage you've gotten in the last couple of years. I, I want to focus on the new burger truck a little bit um, and, and spin that off of different wild game meats that uh, you can turn into burgers. Um, I know you've done this with venison, uh, so let's start there. Tell us about um, um, anything you need to keep in mind when you're making a venison burger. Yeah, so... Uh well, for so we, you know, in the venison book, we have a burger in there, um, and it's in in my you know the way we cook burgers at uh, the trailer at our restaurant, and then the way I cook burgers at home are two different ways, but they're both great. Uh, the way I cook venison burger, it's over like a, a live fire grill, and we kind of make them a little thicker, and you want to cook them to about medium, medium rare. Uh, the way we do them over at the barbecue company or the burger company is we have this huge griddle and we smash them. Uh, and they're cooked medium well, and they're just full of fat. Uh, venison burgers, you know, they probably have a little less fat in them unless you grind pork belly or beef into them. Um, so we, I, I do big, you know, 8-ounce, 6-ounce patties and grill them to medium, and then I usually coat them in, like, some sort of cheese that's a little fattier. So in the cookbook, we did a brie, you know, a melted brie. Mm -hmm. And so you just have that rich venison flavor and it's just covered in melted brie. And then I think we did some sort of, you know, fruity, you know, fruity jam or warm compote uh, on the bun too. And it adds a little sweetness and it, it's just a great thing to do. In most recipes I've seen for wild game, it, most of the chefs stay away from ketchup and mustard. They tend to go towards the you know, the sour cherry jam or so, what's the, what's the rationale? Why is the flavor different than, than a beef burger? Well, it, you just kind of have that, that gamey, that gamey flavor. Um, and it pairs so well with sweetness, uh, or just a little bit of sweetness. You don't want to overwhelm it and take away the flavor of whatever you're cooking, but the two things just pair up, uh, they just pair it beautifully. Uh, but mustard but, too, you know, I, I love mustard on a burger and I don't think there's anything you can't go wrong with that either. 
Hey, John and Bob Hoyt, time out now. <laughs> this is a guy that's uh, it's it's salt and pepper challenged. <laughs> um, when you're talking brie, what is that, John? So brie, I mean, brie is just like a, uh, it's a soft, it's just a really creamy, soft cheese. And you can eat it, you know, raw, not raw, but uncooked, and it's just really soft, tons of uh, fat in it. And then if you melt it, it just completely kind of smothers uh, whatever you're melting it on. And it's just, it's just decadent, and uh, it's just, it's incredible cheese. And you can find it at most grocery stores. Um, so it's a great cheese for burger because it melts so well. Uh, but it really goes great with anything. Now, Captain, okay. I think you're pulling our leg. I mean, you named your dog Bree. Oh, well, yeah, but she's not. I don't melt <laughs> her to you, over a burger. You did, you've never eaten Bree before? Uh, well, maybe I have not knowing it. I didn't know what the name of it was. <laughs> uh, well, it is interesting, though, that that's the other piece, though, is most wild game burgers... Is not you know the the chef doesn't pair it with cheddar or you know American cheese. It it tends to be something a little bit out of the I guess out of the norm. Um, is that is that similar thought process for other wild game meats that you go and uh, make burgers out of, John? Well, I think you know my thought process. I don't know everyone's, but we put so much time into into you know harvesting game killing killing an animal and then mm -hmm. cleaning it, grinding it, um, all those things. And then you probably want to take a little time and make it, you know, your, your whatever you're cooking with a little more special too, since you're taking mm -hmm. hours of your life to harvest the meat and, you know, you might not want to just slap a piece of American cheese on there. You might want to too, and that's absolutely fine. But I think my train of thought is when we're cooking wild game burgers, it's just kind of step up mm -hmm. every aspect of of it and make it you know full experience that you just love john you mentioned that you would you you mixed it with some uh, some fat some pork and that is that is that pretty much it or do you ever cook it just straight venison uh we've done both you know i've done where i've mixed in i have a buddy who they they'll take uh they'll take a bunch of deer and you know they 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 go um they kind of hunt as a group and they'll kill 10, 12 deer. And then they also have a member of their party who raises cows. So they'll grind in maybe 20, 25% beef, some of the fattier parts of beef, um, into their burgers. I think those are great. Uh, I've done them straight venison and got some venison fat in there too. I think that sometimes people shy away from that, but mm -hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily think you have to. Um, and then we've also done them where you take uh, pork belly or even just pork back fat, which is kind of like the more firm fat off the off like the top of a pig or the back of a pig. It's called back fat, uh, and grind it into the burgers for like an eighty twenty mix. We've done that with turkey a bunch too, um, and turkey burgers with back fat is just something that uh, it's perfect. They go they go so good, so so well together. So turkey, are you using the the breast meat, the thigh meat, or a combination of everything ground? A little bit of everything. So mm. one, you know, one thing that I've heard with turkeys and seen experience with turkeys is the thighs and the legs can be a little bit harder to cook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've tried a lot of preparations from them with them and some successful and 
Some haven't been, but the most successful one, in my opinion, which was something I just thought I could eat every day, it was one of my favorite burgers, uh, was turkey burgers, and we took pork back fat and a little bit of pork belly and ground probably a 30-70 mix with all the legs and all the breast and uh, ground it and, uh, you know, did a little seasoning in there and then just made turkey burgers, and it was a great use of those legs and thighs where – um, you just there wasn't going to be any risk of it not turning out. Hmm. So, uh, it's a yeah tur- turkey burgers uh, for wild birds are a great great recipe. Uh, go ahead, Captain. What what about some of the other game, uh, some of the small game, John, where it would take quite a bit to uh, to have to you'd have to keep them and compile them and put them on uh, maybe grouse or a pheasant or even squirrel and rabbit. Well, the other thing we've done is we've just done, or I guess, you know, we have our hunting, our fall hunting group, is we've taken a mix of rabbit and grouse and woodcock, and I'm sure there's something else in there, but uh, some of those smaller animals, and just did a big mix of a wild game burger. And that that also has its own flavor profile that's just really unique. Um, And if you're dealing with smaller, you know, smaller animals and you got to feed a group of guys, uh, that's a great way to just combine everything you have. And again, you probably threw a little bit of pork in that mix, um, and then use some nice cheese and grill them over a, you know, open flame, and it, it, it's a great burger. Hmm. Can you do the same thing with like ducks and geese? Oh, I, if you can kill it, you can grill it. Right? <laughs> uh, I, so I, you absolutely can. Uh, duck and geese. You know, in my opinion, duck might not be. There's so many good ways to eat duck that isn't in a burger form. Probably won't do that, but geese, you know, uh, goose is kind of the same as a turkey where it's a little bit drier um, and maybe adding a little bit of uh, fat to it through the grinding process is a, is a good way to go. What about um, just switching from, from another summer um, type of food from burgers to sausages any particular favorite uh, wild game that you make into a sausage? Uh, you know, no no real favorite. Uh, turkey sausages, again, I go back to that one, are great. Uh, pheasant sausages, I think, are just uh, just the best, too. We used to make a uh, – one of, one of the recipes I used to make with pheasant was like a pheasant boudin, which is – it, it kind of has a similar texture to a um, as a bratwurst, hmm. but you kind of you, you whip um, you whip the meat with a bunch of other stuff, and it emulsifies, and it kind of has this like soft but spongy texture, and it's just full of fat and full of flavor. It's a, that's a great a great sausage, or uh, I don't know, just your regular breakfast venison sausage. That's you know that's one of my favorites too. I mean venison sausage you can't can't beat it. Our, our guest is Mr. John Whipfley, the owner of Animali's Barbecue in Northeast. And John, which which uh, uh, where is your where are your barbecues located? So we have our barbecue spot is at Able Brewing, which is in Northeast That's Minneapolis. Um, and then our burger truck, it's, and both both these trailers are uh, permanently at breweries. Um, our burger truck is permanently at Bauhaus Brewing, and you can see us here from Wednesday to Saturday. Okay. 
And what uh, what do you got on the special this weekend for folks that are coming by? Oh man, so much over here. We have um, we're doing uh, grilled oysters tomorrow night, uh, which are pretty limited. Then we have uh, some smoked jerk chicken. We have uh, pork shoulder pastrami, which mm. we're super excited about. Um, we have tequila braised pork sandwiches. Uh, we have peaches and cream, uh, wa- watermelon that we're soaking in ginger, simple syrup with habaneros and <laughs> lime juice. Uh, we have these tiramisu puddings, which are just incredible. So if you're looking for a good meal, this is, uh, this is a good weekend to come on down. Well, and you got, um, there's a, a special with a whiskey sauce too, isn't there? Yeah, we were running a uh, rib with bourbon, bourbon uh, barbecue sauce tonight, and we'll probably have a little bit of that throughout the weekend. But uh, it's a uh, you know bourbon and uh, and barbecue they kind of go hand in hand. So we were running that tonight, and uh, probably have it you know a little bit a little bit left for tomorrow too. Cool. Wow. It, I I can wow. test I can testify that uh, it is incredible incredible food. Uh, folks are listening um, that haven't followed um, John and his businesses on Instagram. If you want to get hungry, go to Anamala's Barbecue Co um, on Instagram or Anamala's Burger Co Burger Company on Instagram, and it's just pornography of food and i would say based on my experience if if there's anything with like jalapenos or candied jalapenos as a component of the recipe make sure you order that because something john you do with jalapenos is just anything that you put jalapenos on is kind of a gold star what what what's the is there is that a favorite um component for you yeah, so we, I mean, I just love peppers in general, but uh, we have a jalapeno recipe, which we we just did it as a trial recipe three years ago now, and it caught on like wildfire, uh, and people have just been coming back just for this little side of jalapenos, but all you do is you take jalapenos, and you thinly cut them on a, with your knife or on a mandolin, and you want them like under an eighth inch thick, um, or right around there, and then you just coat them in sugar ton of sugar for 24 hours leave them at room temperature and uh, the sugar kind of melts and softens the jalapenos mm. and and then we just we actually put them on just about every plate and people come just for those uh, jalapenos so uh, you nailed it yeah it's incredible it's incredible well i know you got a busy night thank you so much for making time to to join us and talk to us about uh, wild game burgers, I, I'm going to go home and thaw out some venison and and uh, go buy a block of uh, or a wheel of brie cheese, Captain. Well, I already got it written down. I'm going to have to look. <laughs> yeah, it'll be. A, we'll, oh, John, we'll both be you're a... way over my head, buddy. And that's this is. A, and I was told I should master salt and pepper before I got to worry about any of the rest of it. Hey, if you if you just cover it in brie cheese, you don't have to worry about the salt and pepper. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, my friend. Yeah, that's that's John Whipley, and uh, not only a great guy, but a fabulous cook. And <laughs> it, it, you do need to stop by. It, it's just um, 
it's incredible how good his his barbecue. I haven't been to the burger spot yet, but uh, boy, his ribs are just unbelievable. And I remember when he came into the studio, Bob, how uh, guests or hosts that were on after we finished when we left some of it bore them yeah I, they were very disappointed when that didn't show up every week i remember it because it, it was uh the winter because beyond the pond i was listening so i was in the 10 to noon hour and jordan leopold who was on the show at that time was like who brought in this food it's just unbelievable <laughs> So, yeah, it lasted a little while because he brought in a huge tray of it, but it was incredible. And, and the, story, the story goes, he he did the smoking out on his apartment deck. Mm. And I think it was on second floor, and he actually started uh, his deck on fire. Oh, I don't remember and, that. And uh, he was busy tr- putting it out. <laughs> I was busy eating. I don't remember that element of the story. <laughs> you were obviously eating. <laughs> I think I was. You look like a kid with no bib on, and it looked like a Bozo the Clown face. It was just covered. <laughs> a Bozo the Clown reference. That is, that's quality. How about that, huh? Yeah. Impressive. Hey, let's take a pause because we're going to talk some pheasants, and we can probably get them down to John once season opens if we've got way too many. How's that? Yeah, perfect. We'll talk with Mr. Matt Christensen. Matt Christensen. The Pheasants Forever next. I'm fa- and the fan. As you know, my co-host, Mr. Bob St. Pierre, has been absolutely bored with summer for the past three weeks. About He's looking forward to grouse season hmm. and also the fall when pheasant season rolls around, hmm. too. So we decided to maybe get him a little more excited <laughs> or depressed. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. But we'll find out with our next guest coming up because Matt Christensen of Pheasants Forever joins Bob and I right now on Fan Outdoors. Matt, been a long time, no talk, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Well, I can't speak for Bob, but uh, I'm just peachy. <laughs> I'm ready to winterize my boat, Matt. I'm uh, I'm anxious <laughs> to go bird hunting. <laughs> Ready to hang up the fishing effort. I got uh, I got a trip to Vermilion on the calendar, and 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 then it, it will be a hundred percent focused on on uh, figuring out where the birds are going to be this fall. And that, my friend, is where you come in. Oh boy! Uh, <laughs> uh, um, you live you lived not too far from uh, from the captain, but. You get around the state and you talk with chapters um, all over the state and biologists. What, what are you hearing? You know, obviously it's been dry, um, but is there hope on the horizon for the coming autumn hunting seasons? Well, you're right. I do get to uh, uh, talk to uh, quite a few different folks across the state, and, and there is a glimmer of hope, uh, believe it or not. And um, we all know that it is dry, and that's definitely playing a a significant uh, little portion of what we're seeing out on the landscape today, but I'm uh, keeping an eye on this drought monitor, and uh, Billy, 
your part of Stearns County is not looking exceptional either at the moment. But uh, like I said, there is hope on the on the horizon, and and uh, it is dry, but reports and observations are good as of right now believe it or not and and uh, one of the neat things about the observations from folks i'm talking to is that the only thing consistent is that it's pretty inconsistent and that's in terms yeah. of uh, brood sizes so we're mm. seeing little chicks still and uh, uh multiple reports of you know almost uh football size chicks uh, already which is good to hear hmm. Matt, that's not so unusual, though, with the uh, with the pockets of birds and some great, some good, and some not. Certainly, um, and and uh, I mean, most of us likely realize that weather has a has a big part to play in that. And some parts of the state, believe it or not, have had some moisture and did earlier this spring. And and I think uh, with the good winter that we had overall, you know, those older hens, they know what to do. They nest early, um, and when they're successful, it's probably leading to some of the bigger chicks that we're seeing right now. And, and others with not quite so much experience uh, maybe had a nest fail and, and re-nested, and we're starting to see those smaller ones as a result as well. I, I talked to a farmer yesterday, and he was telling me that there's he's seeing a number of birds, and he is he was very encouraged by it too. But that, again, is one of some of those pockets, and it depends on the habitat that's around too. Certainly, certainly, and um, if I had to, if I had to sum it up, some of my uh, partners and colleagues in the southwest part of the state might be shaking their fist at me right now. But uh, uh, once again, the southwest part of Minnesota seems to be like they have a lot of habitat. The prairie is blooming right now; mm-hmm. um, it is looking beautiful, and uh, as a result, I'm hearing some good good uh, perspectives from down in that part of the state you mentioned the drought monitor and anybody can check that out at drought excuse me drought.gov and it's really no secret i mean you look in in minnesota is in um you know the basically the western third of the state is in a well most of the third um west of the state is in the drought uh Mm -hmm. severe drought but the as you point out the southwest corner Lyon County, um, Nobles, uh, that that southwest, probably, I don't know, six, eight county area, it's in a drought, but it's much more moderate. And yeah. you know, about, boy, 4th of July, I had a friend say, after it rained, is like, that was a billion dollar rain. Because sure. it, it really yeah. came at, um, at a really critical time to green things up again. And, you know, when it comes to birds, the drought has a couple of impacts. Well, part of it is is habitat, um, growing habitat. But a lot of a lot of times, people get to the insect component. Explain the how drought impacts insects and how that relates to to pheasants. Certainly, um, you know, most of us out there, I think, realize and, and understand. And, and if you don't, um, you know, those pheasant chicks. They're depending almost exclusively on insects for the first uh, two to three to four weeks of their life. And um, I can tell you from sitting around the campfire, there doesn't seem to be nearly as many mosquitoes as we're typically used to here for this time in the state of Minnesota. And when it's hot and dry, it seems like those insects, uh, at least this year, have had a response to that as well. And, And subsequently, there's been 
you know, some significant chatter about what that means for, for chick survival in those first few weeks, and uh, it certainly has an effect on them. And, and uh, I think we're going to get through it okay. I uh, certainly can walk my pollinator plot that I have here at the ranch in west central Minnesota and, and, and see insects right now, and, and that's a good sign for me. Hmm. Do they get to a point, Matt, do pheasants get to a point when they're not so reliant on insects? And what what would that where would that be, if so? Ah, oh, they certainly do. Uh, the insects those first couple of weeks, like I mentioned, are, are so rich and critical in protein for those growing growing birds that that's like I said what they almost exclusively eat. But as they mature, as they hit, you know that six uh, to eight week time frame, they'll they'll still continue to eat insects. But uh, as the season progresses, the summer progresses, they'll also kind of you know, switch gears a little bit more to, to native seeds and, and things like, you know, ragweed to some extent and seeds. And, and um, they're, they're pretty opportunistic for the most part when it comes to those kind of small inverts and, and uh, opportunities on the ground. And, and as we all know, those adults, too, they'll start to focus in on, on that waste grain and agricultural component as, as we get closer towards September and October and, and Bob puts his boat away for good. <laughs> Uh, I was having a conversation with your one of your cohorts, um, Matt Morlock, a biologist in South Dakota, um, about a week ago, and we were talking about this this very same topic about pheasant chicks eating insects, and I made a comment about well, I, you know, grasshoppers, you know, in the, in the when you're opening day, you open up a crop, and a young bird, it's almost entirely grasshoppers, and you know, I said. It, Boy, I'm not seeing a lot of grasshoppers this time of year. Are they're they're are they out there? And Matt started laughing at me, as you probably will imagine. That you know, Bob, uh, a pheasant chick trying to get a grasshopper at you know a couple weeks of age. That's like you know riding a buck and bronco. They're not eating grasshoppers in June. In in July, they're eating soft-bodied insects. So. Uh, what what kind of insects? I mean, are they eating wood ticks? Are they eating beetles? What are they eating? Well, if I could shrink myself down and uh, be a chick for a week, Bob, I could report back to you <laughs> on that one. Uh, uh, they're eating whatever they can find right now, and and uh, and uh, specifically. It's been too long since I've been in the actual biology realm to tell you what uh, they're they're isolating right now. I guess whatever's available, especially with conditions like this. Hmm. How, how dependent are they on water, Matt? Well, most critters are dependent on water to some extent, as we know, and, and uh, it certainly plays a role. Um, I think they're, they have the unique ability to, to get water um, from things like an overnight dew uh, or a light precipitation event that uh, they can snag some water off of uh, what remains in the grasslands and the forbs and, and um, certainly plays a role as well. I have often wondered when you see them later on in the fall when Bob's boat is long <laughs> gone. Um, it, when a pheasant, like sometimes you'll, you'll get a pheasant and the crop is just plumb full of corn or beans or, or whatever it is, leaves and, and things. How often do they consume and empty that crop and how often do they need to, to fill that up again? Is it more uh, once a day, multiple days? I've always been curious about that. Yeah, that's a pretty good question. I, as far as I understand it, um, 
they're trying to fill that thing about once a day depending on the weather conditions and obviously we know as it's drier and it's as food becomes harder to find they're going to be very opportunistic and keep that thing relatively full and and as we get into colder weather um you know we all know what it takes to keep uh, a hen pheasant healthy throughout the winter so they're going to be eating much more frequently and then how about grit will they have to pick grit uh quite often too do you do you know that uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know how often that they do that. I mean, I see them on the road every morning and, and in the evening, um, you know, picking that grit, but uh, I don't know how frequently they have to kind of replenish that. Okay. I'm just curious because it's just, it, it's it's kind of, I'm curious about the crop too because I wonder how, how soon they go to, to go to food or if, as you said, they're opportunistic and, and just picking things as they go along too. Certainly. It's uh, pretty interesting to bring it back to the grouse woods, too. I mean, we've uh, harvested uh, some rough grouse in the fall and, and opened up uh, the crop in the same extent that you would with a pheasant, and it's just amazing to see how much those little birds can stuff into those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's always pretty in, indicative of, of what they're feeding on and where to isolate and, and go after those things. And uh, it's always amazing to me how much they can put in there. Before we... And, 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 Matt, sometimes I remember when some of the opening weekends when Bob and I have hunted, it seems that standing corn is an attraction for an awful lot of hunters, but most of the young birds in a particular year, we got we found those birds in uh, kind of weed fields and shorter grass and stuff like that, and they were full, as Bob said earlier, of grasshoppers. Mm-hmm. People have to, hunters have to be aware of some of these things too. Absolutely, and uh, we all know the Minnesota weather we can get on on opening weekend. It can be uh, pretty gnarly out, or in recent years, it can be pretty warm. And um, I would agree. I, I, it, in my experience, they seem to to go towards that crop seed uh, leftover residual a little bit later in the year. And and we certainly find plenty plenty of uh, roosters in October and early October in those habitat transition areas, and uh, that's pretty neat to see. It's, it's held consistent for me over the years, and it, uh, it's kind of my go-to early on. But we got to get them to that point first, and I think we're well on no, our way you're right doing there. that, which is nice. Before, right. before we let you go, I know a big part of your job is working with, um, you know, half of the 75 chapters of Pheasants Forever across the state of Minnesota who have um, kept, continue to do habitat projects but really haven't had a heck of a lot of events because of the pandemic over the course of the last year and a half how are the chapters doing and um, do you have events on the calendar this fall or most chapters pointing towards the spring of 22 Uh, a little bit of both and and uh, believe it or not pheasants forever quail forever our our chapters and our and our network of volunteers um for lack of a better word, we survived the pandemic pretty strong, and that uh, I think is a pretty cool testament to our our local grassroots model, where those chapters and those volunteers who are raising money uh, at a thing like a banquet, you know, they get to retain the control on on how to spend it. And we didn't have many events last year, uh, but the chapters in Minnesota are resilient, and they uh, kept putting habitat in the ground. Uh, we have events on the calendar for this fall. 
two now on opening weekend of pheasant season on the 16th uh, of October, believe it or not. And um, and folks are starting to get more comfortable with uh, figuring out new and innovative ways to, to raise money and stick it right back into the ground, which, of course, is the heart and soul of Pheasants Forever. So it's it's encouraging. Folks are ready to get back out and get after it, and uh, it's my pleasure to help them uh, kind of lead those efforts. So it's it's pretty neat to see uh, how Minnesota chapters and volunteers at, at PF have bounced back. What uh, communities have those two opening weekend banquets? We're going to have one in my home county of Pope. That's Glacial Ridge, Pheasants Forever. Uh, that will be uh, in the Starbuck Glenwood area. And then I just learned this morning that uh, Cottonwood County out of Wyndham is going to be hosting one on, on October 16th as well. So cool. if you're interested, go to the events webpage of uh, pheasantsforever.org, and you can find any and everything uh, revolving Pheasants Forever there. Very cool. Those are always well, festive. Billy and I have been to the Pope County one on yeah. opening weekend, and that's a heck of a good way to find out where people found the birds <laughs> or didn't find the birds come uh, come the eve- evening of the opener. That's, uh, yeah, that's correct. Fun it's deal. a good time. Cool. Th- thank you it very much. Time. I appreciate it, gentlemen, as always. Take care. Thanks, Matt. That's Matt Christensen, regional representative for the western side of Minnesota, working with all the Pheasants Forever chapters across the western part of the state. And uh, just one of my favorite co-workers, Captain, just a really, really fun guy. He is a good guy, and he does a great job, too. Uh, Bob, let's take our final pause of the evening and come back and... We've got one more segment, and I've got a number of things that I want to share with you and our listeners right after. The Fan. Last segment, Fan Outdoors, this Thursday evening. We'll be back again next week, so I invite you to stop on by. Bob St. Pierre is in St. Louis Park at World Headquarters, and I am Billy Hildebrand at my own World Headquarters right here on (laughs) the shores of Sock Lake and a place that I lovingly refer to as the cabin. And looking out at the lake right now, I see one boat, and it's heading south, but there has been very, very little boat traffic on this body of water in the last few days, and imagine that will change come the weekend. And you'll Especially put... the wake boats. There was a wake boat that went by last weekend, and honest to goodness, the wake is oh. a good three to four foot. It's like a, it's I don't know. It's like something that I don't want to have roll over me when I'm fishing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so... you know, yesterday I told you that mm-hmm. Denny Fletcher and I of Fletcher's Bait were fishing yesterday, Bob, and and we were fishing sunfish, and it was really funny because. It took me back a long, long time, a lot of years. And Denny, the same thing. We were kind of giggling and laughing. And fish, I was fishing two-pound line, and it kept it getting the reeds, and it'd break me off. And I was retying and re-rigging. And, and I just remembered oh so vividly taking the kids out. And he was talking about his grandkids and how they would... They're just they're really excited because he's going to take them out now that we found some fish and and let them catch some of these sunfish and it 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 was 
it was kind of comical, but it was most refreshing. Hmm. When's the last time you fished sunfish? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I fish sunfish quite often. So, uh, oh, do you really? Well, uh, they're a little easier to catch than walleyes, Captain. At least for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks ago. Fish sunfish okay. and crappies for sure, yeah. But I had a oh. similar experience, not not fishing wise, but one of those uh, moments of giggling because I, I bought a, a a fat bike over the weekend and started riding, and I was riding on this uh, path a uh, hill, and I got to the top of the hill. <laughs> I pulled over to the side and started giggling because. I got to get into shape, Captain. It, it was, it, it was, um, it was more of a workout than I was anticipating. Those tires are big, and it takes a little extra pump to get them moving. And and uh, I was out of breath, and had enough breath to giggle, and realize um, it's okay for me to put my boat away soon because I got some got some running to do. Well, I think they they make a little electric motor that'll bat battery power, so it's quiet. <laughs> they do that. It is unreal how how popular electric bicycles are, especially yeah. in the hunting crowd, the the quiet cats. Yeah. And the, I just, I, I'll be honest, I don't get it. I mean, uh, well, I get it. <laughs> well, I get it. I, I suppose I get why, but. Um, and I and I know to some extent, you know, bicycling is is cheating a little bit, but um, I still gotta work my tail off. Whereas the electric, it's I don't know, that just feels feels like cheating. Oh you no, know, I, I save my work and my tail off for two feet in the ground when I get to where I'm going, man. <laughs> for, for two feet into the ground? What do you mean? Well, one step before the other one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, here's another one too. Dogs are now legal to take them out on WMAs on public lands, mm. but just be careful with the heat too, oh, because. Yeah. And uh, I've told people on the show before that a year ago, Eric and I took my el older dog Snap out, and uh, we're really not very. It wasn't a very good thought on our part. We thought we'd just go for a short walk. Well, we were out for about five minutes, and and Snap just kind of tipped over. Yeah. And I realized how stupid we were, and we carried her back and got her in air conditioning and got her water and everything, and I'll never do that again because I was just panicking. And I can't believe how dumb I was. Yeah. I can't, but I know better. Well, but it, the heat is for certain top of mind, but the other thing if you're going to run your dogs on public lands, particularly um, areas with with pheasants, um, boy, you gotta be you gotta have your dog under control because there are those broods out there are still really young, and especially in um, kind of variable habitat conditions because of this drought, there's birds still on their nests. There's going to be chicks that have hatched that can't barely fly. Um, so just be real prudent to buy. I mean, if you got a really staunch pointer that's not going to bust in on birds, that's one thing. But boy, just just be real careful about uh, wreaking havoc on on those wild youngsters out there. And then the other thing, Bob, I wanted to mention is that the final event of the Bassmaster Elite Series started today. 
And you can watch it at Bassmaster.com, or you can follow it on Bass Track, and if you just want to get the results. But our friend, Mr. Seth Fighter, is right now in fifth place with 22 pounds and five, with five fish, five smallmouth. And the leader is Bernie Schultz. He has 25, a little over 25 pounds, but he has one five-pound fish. Hmm. And Austin Felix, also from Minnesota, is in 15th place with 20 pounds. But Seth is leading the Angler of the Year race, which is a very prestigious accomplishment should he do it but he has a 69 point lead and his nearest competitor is in 91st place Hmm. so he's uh in sitting in pretty good shape right now and uh, the story so the story i read about today's event the day one of four was that he's uh he lost a four-pound fish. Right after that, he lost a three-and-a-half-pound fish, and I think he lost one more. And then all the bad luck was gone, and he started catching and putting them in the boat. And on a chatterbait, he finished out his limit with five and a half a five-and-a-half-pounder, a smallmouth that is, and that is a big smallmouth. But uh, we wish him all the luck in the world, and I don't think he needs luck because he's got the skill to go with it. So we're pulling for him, especially uh, Eric and Chad and myself are pulling for him big time. And we really want him to go and do well, but he's having a wonderful season out on the Bassmaster Elite Trail. So this is a final event, and they will cap off the Angler of the Year award and also the winner of this event uh, comes Sunday. And we're looking forward to seeing, hopefully, Seth in the top ten and going out and fishing for everything. So, so go, Seth. Go get him. Hypothetical. If Seth were your co-host, would you tell Seth what color flicker shad you lost and you're trying to find? Doesn't make any difference now because it's gone. <laughs> I bet you he it's has on it. some stupid carp. <laughs> I bet you he has one in his tackle box, though. I'll bet he, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe it. That bugger <laughs> took off and went under the trolling motor, and I couldn't stop him. Oh, uh, Captain. <laughs> it just, it irritated, and I even thought about trying to chase him down, but he made a duck underneath the trolling motor, and I just, I couldn't stop it. <laughs> and it was a big, I couldn't stop it. A big carp, I take it? Well, all I saw was the tail come up, and it was about four or five inches across. Hmm. And, uh, you know, they're fun to catch. I just not with my only crankbait that I had of that kind. Um, but they're really fun to catch. And I saw a series, Linders did a, a show on how to catch them. And it would, I mean, they fight like the, there's no tomorrow. Um Especially this one, there was no tomorrow. He got tomorrow. <laughs> and what color? What color crankbait was it? It's gone. It's gone. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it's just a memory, and I might even forget that. <laughs> so, so when are the brassy shiners going to be ready? Uh, they should be ready. In fact, Denny was going to check them. I think in a couple of weeks. Okay. 
and he's going to have all kinds of them come. Uh, well, you won't care because your boat's going to be long gone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I will have a shotgun in my hand by the time brassy shiners are in the, the, the minnow bucket. See, Eric and I have already decided we're not going to hunt ducks the first few weeks because we're going to fish. Is that right? Yeah. I don't, it's, I yeah. don't even know you anymore. Uh, it's it's just so much fun, and there's nobody else out there. I mean, it's incredible, yeah. and the fish are fish are really on. Mm. Um, at least the last two years, they've been really good. And I think this teal season, I'm not a big fan of it, mm-hmm. but that's going to go in early September. If I think September fourth, I don't quote me on that, mm. but it's uh, it's the teal season is going to go take place and. And we'll see how that goes. If history is a teacher, and I've been through it before, I'm not a fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dennis Just Anderson. That. Dennis wrote a pretty, uh, pretty good article about that very topic. Oh, really? I yeah. have to read that. Yeah, it was probably three weeks ago now. Um, hey, we're going to have to duck out of here. I want to say thank you to our guest, to Mr. Todd Amonrude, to uh, professional chef John Whipley of Animales Barbecue. And what's the other one, Bob? Animales Burger Company. That's it. So do check that out. And also thank you to Matt Christensen for getting Bob and I all excited for the upcoming <laughs> fall. So with that being said, I want to say thank you to our producer, Mr. Brett Blakemore. To For Bob St. Pierre, I am Billy Hildebrand saying... I'll see you Saturday morning, and I forgot what color it was. Ta-ta.